All right, you guys can have a seat. Hey, my name is Eric, and I am one of the pastors here at Alpine Church. I'm glad to be here with you guys today, and uh, we are in the last week of this series called Culture Wars. We've been walking through the book of First Peter, and uh, that book is, a, if you want to follow along with me today, we're going to be in chapter 5 of First Peter. We've been walking through it, kind of looking at, at it from the lens of Peter being one of the disciples, one of the apostles of Jesus, who was trained directly by Jesus on how to live this life as a Christian and how to do the work that he's called us to do. Peter is saying now 30 years later, after Jesus ascended, 30 years later, Peter's writing this letter to these churches in the Asia Minor region, but it also is for us today. And he's telling them, look, as, as you live as a Christian, there's going to be a war out there, a war in your soul on the inside and a war outside. The culture and the world are opposed to each other. The way of the world um, hates the things of God. And so there will be all kinds of trials and persecution and suffering and, and tricks from the enemy to try to get us to slip up, to try to confuse us, to try to, to divide the church. And Peter is warning against all of that. And so as we look at chapter 5, I'm going to say that the title or the, the, the thing that we're looking at today is kind of the final battle instructions in the culture war. Now we've looked at, you know, what Peter had to say about men and women and the differences in their roles at home and in the church. Uh, we've looked at uh, the the lies of of culture and people trying to divide the church. We've looked at all kinds of different things, and now Peter's kind of winding down at the end of this letter, and he's saying, now let me give you these last instructions. As you go out there and you, you experience what Christians all over the world are experiencing. Now, I know in America, we don't experience much persecution and trial for our faith. Now, you might like miss out on job opportunities or maybe, you know, get made fun of or left out or whatever. Like, uh, what's, who's the, the reindeer? Little, who's the reindeer with the red nose? Rudolph, he, they, he, they didn't let him join in any reindeer games. Yeah. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like Rudolph? I know that I, you know, I grew up in Utah, and I did actually feel like Rudolph. I got left out of a lot of things because I grew up uh, as a Christian in my home. And, and so that's really what Peter's talking about. Like, in, in, as an alien, as a sojourner, as a foreigner um, in a land that is not for you. You know, the Bible says you're not of this world. In, in, in this land where you're called to live, it's going to be tough, right? But don't try to be like everybody else. Don't try to be like the world. Endure to the end. Stand firm in the faith. We're going to see what Peter has to say to us. And specifically, he's going to start out in chapter 5 talking to the church. He's, these letters are to churches. And so he's going to start off talking to actually the elders. So let's jump right into it in the first, I think, five verses. Peter says this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful game, but eagerly. So Peter starts off and he says, as a fellow elder, and that word is synonymous with pastor, elder, overseer. And he's saying, as I have been a pastor, as I have been a leader of the church, as an overseer elder of the church, I now can tell you um, 
through my experience and through me being directly trained from Jesus Christ, here's how you ought to lead your flock. And you should be a shepherd of the flock. You should, you should exercise leadership but not under compulsion. You shouldn't have to be compelled, right? The leaders of your church shouldn't have, shouldn't have to be told what to do or like made to do things, right? They should willingly want to lead, right? And, and so I, mean, I know that a lot of you think that like the pastor's job is easy. Doesn't he only work on Sundays for like a couple hours? He gets up on stage and he, he says a few things, but no, really the pastor's job Although it has some perks to it, like, uh, you know, not a set schedule. Maybe that wouldn't be that fun for you guys. But we're on call most of the time, you know. We're, we're trying to further the, the kingdom of God in, in the community by, by trying to get people to join small groups and to study their Bible and to, to grow in prayer. And, and I got to tell you that, you know, human beings, you know, naturally just push against those things and don't want to do them. <laughs> and they don't want to be told to do those things. And then if you, you know, so like the pastor's job kind of gets a little bit difficult in trying to inspire people to follow the Lord. Because there, there's this other side of it is don't tell me what to do. Uh, you're judging me. You're legal, legalistic, you know. And so, again, the pastor's role should be one of willingness and not for shameful gain, not for greed, not what he can gain out of it. But here's what I want to tell you really quick. I'm not saying all this stuff so that you guys will respect me and, and love me and like me or whatever. But this is this part of the chapter. But I will say that you do have a good team of shepherds here at this church. There's a team of overseers um, and elders. And, and Mike is the, the lead pastor. And you have a good pastor here that is willing to lead. He doesn't have to be compelled to do the things that he's called to do, and he certainly doesn't do it for any kind of, of gain. And this next verse, I believe, kind of really exemplifies him, and he, know, he doesn't like this when I'm talking about him up, up on stage. You know, he doesn't want the, the attention, and that's why I'm preaching today, so I could... I could uh, make light of him. But here's this, this thing that, that really just reminds me of Mike. Not domineering over those in his charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, see, see the chief shepherd is talking about Jesus. That's, that's uppercase S shepherd. Earlier it was lowercase because all people are under the, under the leadership of Christ. When Jesus appears, there's going to be... Uh, a unfading crown of glory. And then here's where it turns to the whole church now. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Um, now, I want to deal with that, that first verse, though. I've known Mike for probably eight years or so, and I've had the opportunity to be able to, you know, mentor and, and lead and, and watch him come up in ministry. And I'll tell you this, that he is a humble guy. Like, that is the one thing that... Uh, above all other characteristics that he has, his humility um, made it so that I, you know, that he was, I believe, very a, a very good candidate to be the next pastor at the church. Um, and he leads by example, not by being domineering. And he does. I don't think he has that in his nature to be domineering. I don't know. Maybe his wife and kids would probably say something else, but. <laughs> I know that that was, a, that was a characteristic that I struggled with, you know, and he taught me a lot about humility. Actually, 
you know, from his background and my background, um, you know, he would have arrested me. He, I would have been, been one of those people that he would have arrested back in the day, and, and he was humble enough to let me mentor him. And so he's a great example of great leadership, and, um, and he's accountable to God for that leadership. But then it says, likewise, you who are younger, be uh, submissive to the elders. And we've already talked about in like chapter three, where it talked about husbands and wives roles and this, this idea of uh, submission and, and, and being submissive to one another. And it's really just another way of, of bringing up the idea of humility. You know, the, the definition of humility is to make yourself lower than someone else, to think of others greater than yourself, to say, I don't know it all, that I am teachable, right? Those are the type of people that you want leading you, right? And so if you're here first and foremost, and you're thinking about finding a church, or you've been here for a while, and you're wondering, you know, what makes up good leadership in a church? It's, it's some of these things that, that Peter is talking about in these first few verses, you know, find a church that has good shepherds, that has people that want to be biblical and not domineering, but being examples. And those are the type of people that you can follow, basically. And so that's really my first point in all of this, is that we need to approach this battle with humility and we follow the example of the elders. I believe that's where Peter is going as he starts out this chapter. And the cool thing as we read through the rest of these verses is we're going to see a parallel to 30 years before when Peter was following Jesus. We, I, I believe in Luke chapter 22, at the, the night of the Last Supper before Jesus is crucified, he says some things to Peter and the disciples. And now 30 years later, in 63 AD, he writes this letter and we can see the humility of Peter kind of reminding the church how you ought to be, how you guys ought to be together, uh, how you ought to operate out there in the world, how you ought to uh, be in this battle that we have with culture and this struggle that we have in our faith as being foreigners and exiles in a, in a land that is not our home. We're going to look at some parallels between what Jesus said to Peter and now what Peter's saying to us. And here's what... Uh, how Luke 22 kind of, I want to start out how it, how it mirrors some of the things that Peter says. And here's the context of this. They're, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. When Jesus is saying, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be going away. Things are going to be changing. And now here they go. They say, then they begin to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Now, he's comparing the, wor the world and the church. And the church, the kingdom mentality that Christ set up is completely opposed, and it turns the world's way of doing things up on its head. And the disciples are even confused about this. They're saying, hey, our leader is going. Now, which one of us is going to be the leader of this thing? They're like, it's going to be me. And they're fighting about it, right? There's, there's going to be me. No, it's going to be me. And they're fighting about it. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, have they not gotten this? I've been with them for three years. And he's saying, look, in the world, 
You know, you have CEOs and you have presidents and you have the governors and you have all of this leadership and, and they lord it over you and you, you allow that to happen and you think that that's the way that you should lead my people. And oftentimes there are churches out there that they're like, we want to get more people in the doors. We want to try to attract as many people as we can. We need to get organized. So what we need to do is take a look at this business over here, you know, let's look at this business and how they run it and let's adopt all of that, right? Let's get a CEO. Let's get a CEO that can come and clean everything up. And uh, that is not the way that God's kingdom works. You see, he's saying, if any of you wants to be the leader, you've basically got to put yourself lower than in humility and be a servant. And, and he was modeling that to them in this chapter. He, he in a different, um, different viewpoint in another gospel, he washes their feet, he, he becomes their servant. And he's ultimately saying, I'm going to die on the cross to forgive you of your sins and to make you right with God. And that is what is going to take for you to be the leader. And he's really talking about himself. If you, he is really the greatest among them. You know, and he's saying, if you want to be great and you want to be a leader, then lay down your life. And that is what leaders do. That is what kingdom leaders do. They become servants. And not just leaders of the church, but then that extends to all of us. If any of you want to be great, then become a servant, right? Humble yourself. Be teachable, be willing to put others' needs before your own. And here's how Peter echoes that. He says, and all of you, he's talking to the whole church, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This has happened in my own life. I remember uh, wanting to get into ministry way earlier than what I was really qualified for. You know, it was, I had this zeal. And this is why I love Peter. If you go and read the character of Peter, he has this zeal and this passion. Like, God, I'll never fail you. I'm going to do this and nothing can stop me. And I'm going to be the leader. And I, I, when I was young, and that's why I believe that it addressed younger people ought to submit to the elders, not just younger in age, but also younger in the faith, because young guys like me are kind of filled with pride and think that they know everything, right? Kind of like being a teenager. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but I, I realized um, when I had a teenager it was like, oh my gosh, mom, what did I put you through? You know, I thought I knew everything and I was, you know, uh, you know, the smartest, this, I was, I, all, of your, all of your opinions and your ideas have like phased out and now my way of thinking is, is the best way and I had to be humbled, right? And even coming into ministry, they said, Eric, you're not ready yet, you know? And it took a long time of, of humbling that had to happen in my life. Things that God did and things that my mentors, you know, helped me with in humility. And I still need to grow in humility. I still need to grow in putting others before myself and, you know, thinking less of myself and more of other people in my opinions, right? And Peter is saying, if you're going to win this war, if you're going to be able to endure, then individually as Christians, then you should live like this. Don't be proud, 
but also together, when you guys gather together and you come and um, are with one another as you uh, worship on Sundays or you do your groups or on your serving teams or all the things that you do, you guys are going to have to, the way you're going to work together is by being servants to one another, being humble, thinking of yourself less than. And here's the thing, that last verse, give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. That's a coffee mug verse or like a, you know, uh, one of those postcard verses uh, that people use often. Um, and, but in this context, I want you to understand, in another translation, it says, cast all your cares on the Lord because he cares about you, or anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. In this context, he's basically saying, you're worried because you want to control everything because you have all this pride, you know? You're worried, all these cares that you have about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and who's going to take over and who's going to be the person to make all these decisions. And, and people in pride like me and I've struggled with is thinking that my way is the best way or thinking my opinions are the best. Therefore, I've got to control everything. And when it doesn't go my way, I'm unhappy. He's saying, give all that to God. Give your worries and cares and your control to God. Quit being so proud. God's got this the, you know, the reason why you are where you are isn't because you picked yourself up by your bootstraps and cleaned yourself up, but it was God who got you there in the first place. So quit thinking so highly of yourself. Give your worries and cares to God. He does care about you, even in your pride. He cares about us, but he's going to let the humble be the leaders, and he's going to oppose the proud. That's kind of scary, right? Um, so in a sense... Um, not only is the culture the enemy, but also we can be the enemies of the war, of the culture war that we're fighting, because we can get in the way. Um, our own flesh can oppose God and slow down the kingdom. But we're not the only enemy. My second point then is that Satan also is the real enemy, not just the culture, not just us. The Bible says the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're all fighting it. We're fighting against these three these three kind of systems that are in the world. Our own humility where we need to grow, but then there's Satan who is the influencer of the world. If you don't know who Satan is, I'm sure you've heard about him before, but Satan is a fallen angel, all right? He was an angel who was cast out of heaven because of his pride. Remember that, first and foremost. He was cast out because he wanted to be God. He wanted to be the leader. He thought very highly of himself, and sadly, he took a third of the angels with him, and they were cast down to the earth. And, and so with that, let me just freak you out just a little bit. There's a, a spiritual realm, you know. I want you to understand that there is an enemy who we can't see that is opposed to the work of God, opposed to anyone who calls themselves a Christian, right? A automatically, when you put your faith in Jesus, um, you know, contrary to what you might hear on TV, you've all of a sudden put a target on your back. Now, that's not the prosperity gospel. You know, the prosperity gospel would say that, you know, Jesus wants you to be wealthy, healthy, and happy in this life. And when you put your trust in him, everything's going to be great. Peter is saying, no, that's not going to happen. Now, there is joy to be had and, and inexpensive inexpressible joy and, and just uh, blessing that comes from God when you are in a relationship with him. It is beautiful. It's wonderful. 
but life will get hard. And Peter's reminding us of that. Here's what Jesus says to Peter before Peter reminds us. Jesus is going to tell Peter something that's pretty tough. Simon, Simon, who is also Peter. Jesus gave him the name Peter. But he's calling him Simon because he knows that Peter's going to act in his flesh, in his natural man. He says, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. This is interesting because Jesus is saying, Satan asked all right? If you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, Job in, the, in chapters 1 and 2, Satan comes to God and says, hey, this servant of yours, Job, uh, he's, he's doing all great and wonderful because he's basically being blessed, but let me get at him. Let me do some things to him and then see if he keeps his faith and keeps following you. And you know what God says? Yes. He doesn't say no. For some reason, God says yes. He says, okay, Satan, have at it. And so Satan hurts him and harms him and take, you know, causes a lot of pain and suffering in Job's life. Um, and, and that's the, the interesting thing in this is Jesus didn't tell him no, Satan, no. Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that you, your faith should not fail. He's saying, so he's going to, because I'm going to allow Satan to sift you like wheat, but I'm going to pray for you, right? You ever heard anybody say that to you? Like, I'll pray for you. Like when you tell them you got, you're scared of something, does that ever comfort you, you know? I'll pray for you. Not right now, I'm too busy, but I'll pray for you one day, right? I don't know how comforting that was for Simon to hear, for Peter to hear. I'll pray for you, but what we do know is that Jesus is interceding for us and praying for us and that should be comforting for us to hear because when Jesus prays things happen things move because he is God in the flesh who is pleading on our behalf for God's hand to work in our lives and so in all of this God can even use Satan God is in control of Satan and the demons and God can use evil for his purposes God can use um, bad things for good things. And in this certain situation, Jesus is warning him, look, he's, he's going to do some things to you so that your faith shouldn't fail. So when you have repented, so Jesus is already saying, so you are going to fail, and I know you're going to fail. And later he tells him, because what Peter says after this is he says, I would never, I would never fail. I'd go to prison for you. I would die for you, right? That's why I love Peter and his zeal. You know, he's like, I will do anything for you, right? But if you know the story, you know, actually, Peter does fail. Um, right after this, you know, Jesus says, he says to me, when the, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. He says that. And Peter's like, no way. That ain't going to happen. And what happens later on in Luke 22, um, he's given the opportunity to, say, to stand for Jesus. Jesus gets arrested, they take him off to court, and they're going to crucify him. They're going to they're judge him guilty even though he's innocent. And he follows along at a distance, and some of the, the guard or some people standing around a fire in some certain situations say, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he says, no, I don't know the man. No, he's asked again, no, I don't know a man. And then the third time he's asked, no, I don't know him. And right at that moment, as Jesus is 
bound and being taken, taken away, Jesus can see him from a far way off and, and they, they connect eyes somehow. And it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You see, Peter failed. Peter failed and Jesus warned him about this. And, but the beautiful thing is that the story isn't over yet. But what we do need to take from Peter is that there is a sifting that Satan wants to do to us, and it's a serious thing. And you think that your faith can't fail. You think that all things are good, and I'm just going to keep living however I want and not try grow in my faith, and I'll just connect with God when it's convenient. Well, Satan has a target on our backs, and he's coming after us. And let me tell you a little story real quick. I used to work at uh, a flour mill in Ogden, and I was a maintenance guy, and we would uh, make flour out of wheat, okay? And so there were all these different machines that I would have to repair, and the wheat would be violently shaken in these machines, and like the kernel would be broken, and then it'd be smashed up, and then it'd go through these things called the sifters, which would shake out all the the chaff and the things that weren't going to be used, and then the fine flour would fall through the screens. And, and these machines were huge. You know, we're talking like 12 by 12 by 12 cubes, and we had like 12 or 13 of them on this floor, and they just swung around violently on this motor. And, and, and in order to do work on them, you'd have to go and, and lock them out because if you were to get caught in between somehow, it would kill you. These things are violent, right? And so some of the things that Satan wants to do to us might end up be, being violent. Think about the persecution, the things that happen all over the world. And think about um, just the ability that Satan has to to twist us, to twist God's word, to divide us, to get at us. It can be physical, it can be spiritual, it can be mental. Let's look at how Peter then warns the church. He says, stay alert. I failed. I want you to know this. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. Stay alert. He's waiting for us to slip. He's training. He's hungry like a roaring lion looking for someone to slip up so he can get his claws into us, right? Now, I said before, Satan and the demons, they, they were cast down to earth. And now, you know, over thousands of years... This, these spiritual beings are watching us. They, they're watching how humans work. They're watching humanity. They study us. And, and, and the Bible gives us a little bit of an idea that Satan is actually kind of like, he's like the enemy uh, warlord who has an organized um, battle, an organized military with these demons and it's not like God is the, or Satan's the opposite of God, where God knows everything and he's all powerful. Uh, Satan is not the opposite of God, who also knows all every, everything. But for him to get at us, he has to be so organized in such a way that he has people all over the place. Not people, but, well, people too. But these spiritual forces all over the world that are 
have their little areas that they work in to try to get humans to slip up. Let's look what, what Ephesians says. Paul says in Ephesians 2.2, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. This is saying that the world is influenced ultimately by the devil because he is the commander and chief of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. He is the ruler of this world. And so he's ultimately influencing our culture. This is why we have a war in our culture against Christianity because Satan is influencing the world. He is the commander of the powers in the unseen world. Then he goes on in, in Ephesians six twelve. for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So again, you know, I hope that you can sleep tonight knowing, <laughs> knowing that there is an unseen world that you may not think about often. But Peter and Jesus and Paul are trying to remind us that there is an enemy out there trying to get us to slip up. We have targets on us. He's reminding us that. But it doesn't stop there. I don't want to leave you there so that you leave here worried. Because ultimately, the victory is in God, and it's already been won. And so, as I said before, God allowed Satan to do this. Jesus allowed Satan to sift the disciples like wheat. Um, it's not as if he doesn't see what's going on. It's not as if he hasn't already won, but for whatever reason, he does use the enemy to sanctify, to help us grow, to grow our faith, to, to separate the the, the truly faithful and the fakers, right? The, the, the wheat and the chaff, you see that all over in the Bible. There's a separation and through sometimes a little bit of suffering, we as Christians can't say that we can escape suffering in this world following a suffering servant, the one who came down and suffered and died for us, right? We can't say that, oh, well, we'll never suffer. No. In suffering, it creates all kinds of character. But just know that whatever you're going through, God has ultimately won the victory. Jesus has some good things to say to the disciples. He says, you've stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know what he's saying? In your endurance, you stayed with me. In Jesus' time of ministry, many people left. Some of his teachings were too hard to understand, and they, they weren't getting it. And, but the disciples hung on, and they even, they even scattered after this night for a moment. They failed. They um, walked away from Jesus in fear, but God didn't let them go too far. Even in the suffering and the trial that they had to go through, God held them in his hand. Here's what Peter goes on to say. In his kindness, God has called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore support and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. So back to one of our points in the very first chapter. Suffering and trials are inevitable in our lives. You know, just being a part of this world will cause suffering and trial because of the fallenness of mankind and humanity. 
But even in the Christian's life, there's going to be suffering. But he says this, you've been called to share beyond just this temporal thing, but an eternal glory by Christ Jesus. So after you've suffered a little while, he will restore. And I want you to know that Peter knows a lot about restoration because he failed. But that wasn't the end of his story. That's why he can say this with confidence. He can say that, that he won't let you go too far, that even though you're going to suffer a little while, he's going he's to pick you back up and he's going to place you on a firm foundation. Why does Peter know that? Because after he denied Jesus three times and then Jesus died and he, he rose again, he, he gathered all the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he begins to start to restore Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. And for the third time, he says it three times because I believe he's restoring him three times from his three-time failure. And he says, he had said to him in the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Then feed my sheep. Go take this message to the world. Plant churches. Tell people. Invite people to come hear this message. If you love me, that is the thing that will come out of you, right? And Peter now is saying then, God will restore you. I, you, you might fail. You might suffer out there in the world. But take heart. Jesus Christ has overcome the world, and it's such a beautiful thing in this chapter because how it started out is Jesus restores him saying, feed my sheep. So Peter goes on to do some great things in the New Testament, and he's feeding the, the flock of God, and then now he's, he's passing it on to the next generation. And, and what does he say to the next generation of leaders? He says, shepherd the flock of God. Just like Jesus told me to go feed the sheep, now you go do it, right? In my own life, I failed several times. So many times I can't even count. That's why I love Peter so much, because he had so much zeal, but yet he fell on his face and had to be humbled. But yet God restored him, and he's restored me, and he wants to restore you. If you're not at that place today, God wants to restore you to a place where you can say, yes, I love you, and I will influence my world and my culture for you. I will feed whoever you put in my circle, right? My family, my friends, my coworkers. I'll come to church. I will be humble. I will submit to the words of God because I love you, Lord. That's what Peter's telling us. And then he ends with one of the last verses. He says, I've written and sent this short letter to you, with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother, my purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. He's saying what you're experiencing is part of God's grace for you. Even in the trial and the suffering and the failures, God's moving in you. If you are a child of God, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you're a follower of Jesus and you love him, he says, whatever's going on in your life is God's grace. Stand firm in it. Now, it's not saying we're not accountable for our decisions. We're not accountable for the things that we do in this life that cause us even more pain. The Bible handles that in a different place where Paul talks about it. Don't suffer because of your own decisions. But when you do, 
you can be forgiven. And part of God's grace for you in, in fighting the culture war, though, in the suffering that comes from being rejected and not having the comforts like the rest of the world, that grace is something that's storing up a treasure for you in heaven. Let's go back to the very first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is saying that maybe your property might get plundered and rights might be taken away and you might have to experience persecution and troubles and trials in this life, but there is a place that I have for you that nobody can touch. The rulers of this world can't touch. The enemy has been defeated and has no place in the place that I have for you. And he says, take heart because your faith is being guarded. That inheritance is being guarded by God. So in all that, that is the grace of God and stand firm in that. That is Peter's word to us today, the church, that he wants us to stand firm in his grace, knowing that the reality is, is this life can and will be hard. As we follow Christ, the rest of the world, the majority of the world won't. And we might be mocked and we might be um, talked about and possibly even have things physically happen to us. But in all that, there's something beyond that. If we endure and we stand firm in the faith and we fight this battle with the grace and the word of God, that we, we have victory already. So stand firm in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your truth today. Thank you for um, all the people that were able to just sit and listen to your wisdom. God, I do pray that you would give us the, the ability to endure. We can't even do that, this on our own, and it's such a wonderful thing to think that you, God, are holding our faith and keeping our inheritance in heaven, and, and that that alone should allow us to endure through so many different things. God, help us to have unity, help us to have humility, help us to, to further the kingdom in this city, in this county, God, as we take your word to the, the ends of the world, as you said, God, help us to make disciples of people like you made disciples, and now you've shown Peter how to make disciples, and now he's telling us how to do it, God, help us to do your work, God, and help us to stay faithful while we do it. Thank you for what you've done, in Jesus' name, amen.